Welcome to the What's Up With Docs podcast. I'm Tony Bell, the creator and host. If you'd like to support our work, then show some love by sending us a little coin. Click on support the podcast on our website, www.whatsupdocs.com. Again, that's www.whatsupdocs.com. For our land acknowledgement this week, we're asking and answering the question, why it's important for cultural institutions to do land acknowledgements. Indigenous land or territorial acknowledgements pertain to all places, especially to libraries, archives, museums, and universities, because it is their ethical obligation as educational institutions to create truthful and factual representations. These acknowledgements have an educational function that makes them universally applicable, regardless of an institution's particular focus. They are about respecting and recognizing Indigenous people and their relationships to land through the protocols of naming place, elders, ancestors, and the times of past to future. Acknowledgement statements confront institutional legacies as agents of colonialism. Cultural institutions have utilized deeply colonial methods to develop mainstream representations of the other as territory, in addition to perpetuating and reinforcing destructive colonial narratives. Further, because of the authority of cultural institutions, these narratives have been accepted as truth, informing policies that negatively affect indigenous peoples. The ongoing effects of settler colonialism need to be addressed. That was from the Guide to Indigenous Land and Territorial Acknowledgements from Cultural Institutions. You can find a link to the guide on our website. In this episode, I speak with doc industry professional, Marion Schmidt. During our conversation, we chat about how she got into docs, her time in Egypt during the Arab Spring, her founding of DocBox, and the initiative, the International Documentary Convention. We also chat about the organization she co-founded with past guest Bridget O'Shea, the Documentary Association of Europe. Because the Documentary Association of Europe is about opening doors and breaking change, this episode's song is Freedom by Andrea Triana. Our conversation was recorded in February 2022. Marion, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you, Tony and Jenna, for having me on the podcast. We always like to start off with visual descriptions for our listeners who are visually impaired or blind. So I'll start off by describing myself. Um, I am a brown-skinned Black woman. I have a Black t-shirt on. It's morning in LA, so I have my burgundy satin bonnet on because I'm in my house and I can look how I want to. I have Black headphones. Um, behind me is a lime green couch, and I have a lime green coat kind of strewn around because my place is a little messy. And as is a painting with a multicolor painting um, hanging up with uh, against a white wall. Marion, can you describe to us what you look like? Yes, I try. I'm a white Caucasian woman sitting in my bedroom, really messy bedroom in the center of Berlin in Germany. It's evening here. I'm sitting in front of a window and it's dark outside to the streets of Berlin and there are white curtains behind me. I have usually long curly hair, but it's up in a ponytail because I've had a very lazy comfortable Saturday after a very busy week. So I always like to start off um, by how we met. We first met when I attended Doc Leipzig for the first time. But when I found out I was going to be going to Doc Leipzig, Renell told me about you and Bridget and how hella cool you are and to make sure I connected with you two when I got there. So um, Renault was singing your praises like well before, like we actually met in person and um, you certainly delivered. But I also just want to tell folks that Marion is that type of person. There's this meme, meme that's been going around that says you want to have friends and colleagues who share your name in a room of opportunities. You have totally been that for me in so many ways, like. Because you actually connected me with Mustafa Youssef um, with Seeing Films, who we had on the show. And I ended up doing an impact workshop for their filmmakers as part of their incubator. So um, thank you for the opportunity. I probably owe you a little bit of commission, too. How did you get into documentary? Because that's always my first question for everybody. Yeah, that's a good one. But I need to go back to what you were saying about connecting people. I mean, I love doing this and I somehow feel we all do. And I have to thank you 
for um, being around and uh, giving me the chance to connect you with people. You are simply amazing to me. And um, so it was, it's an easy, it's very easy to connect amazing people like yourself and Mustafa, for instance, in that case, because it was just an, the perfect fit. How did I get to documentary? Yeah, this is a bit of a weird, a bit of a weird one. I still sometimes say that I'm relatively new to the industry. I'm not a filmmaker. I'm not a producer. Um, I spent some years in Cairo, basically from 2011 to 2014. And my background is more in project management and cultural policy and cultural management. And I used to work, among other things, at the Goethe Institute in Egypt and also at um, festivals, arts festivals, um, regional arts festivals in Egypt. I met Mustafa because I was working at an organization called Maurit El Thakafi or Cultural Resource that his, his um, incredible mother, Basma El Husseini, who's the founder and um, used to be the director of this organization for a very long time, uh, was running at the time. And she introduced me to Mustafa and it was obviously the times of the revolution and and the art scene in Egypt was extremely vibrant. And I was so lucky because I somehow got the chance to kind of witness firsthand and be, I mean, I wouldn't say be part of it. That's definitely what, not what I want to say, but I was given the chance to participate in some of the activities and um, was part of implementing an international festival like for the arts, different arts disciplines there. And this is also where I met for the first time um, when I was still working at the Goethe Institute, actually, Diana Rudi, the um, producer and director from Syria that also used to run Doxbox, the documentary film festival that was that was running in, in um, Syria and mostly in Damascus, but all over Syria from 2008 to 2011. And um, she co-founded it with her husband, Oran Rabia, and um, I met them in Cairo in 2000, I can't remember, 14 or something. And then I was, um, they, they went on to, to Berlin at the end of 2014. And then at some point, Diana approached me and asked me um, how I would feel about co-founding Docsbox as a, as a documentary support organization in Berlin. And you know, I'm the kind of person that tends to kind of just completely follow her gut. And, um, and then I start thinking afterwards. And I, when she asked me, I was extremely honored. Uh, but I also didn't really know what it was she was asking me to do, to tell you the truth. Right. Because you didn't know all the implications yet. <laughs> this would have on my life. No, I didn't at all. And then we, uh, we met, I remember we met in, in Beirut and we spoke for half a day and um, she had me. I mean, it was, I had made the decision immediately. And then I moved back to Berlin really for that. And the crazy ride of founding an organization, understanding how German tax system works, uh, how you employ people, et cetera, began. But also at the same time, my um, quite a steep learning curve and entry to the documentary world happened. And I remember the first festival I attended or market I attended was also Doc Leipzig. And um, I remember entering the co-production market and being like, I don't like, know so anyone. It was just completely foreign to you. Exactly. I was like, I don't know anyone. I don't know what people are talking about. I don't know what a commissioning editor is. I don't really know what a producer does. <laughs> I was really like, who? I, I, how, how am I supposed to learn? And I have to say, um, without the generosity of people like Diana Gerudi, Guevara, Neymar, um, also Bridget from the onset, because I was introduced to this very first Doc Leipzig and many, many others, like without their generosity, um, I, I would have never had the chance to also kind of start understanding this world and also building my own network. And this is how it happened. I mean, it was basically through Docsbox. And in the beginning, like the first one, two years, I was mostly looking after the building and establishing of the organization um, and also the administrative part of it um, and was involved in building, like in, in building up certain projects and fundraising, et cetera. But then further down the line, I took up the project of starting an Arab European documentary convention. This is also where in the second edition we met Ranel, but we're going to talk about this later. And this is really the moment when I really was granted the chance. That's how I see it. And given like I was in this very 
privileged position where I was allowed to build a space where people could come together and exchange. And this, of course, also meant I had the chance to get to know many people and um, kind of benefit of their knowledge again and generosity. So that was really how it went. It's like it's almost like creating organizations like that's your thing. <laughs> and that that is such a huge feat. Well, you go on into a little bit about Doc's Box. I like to kind of take take us back a little bit because you describe yourself as a project management and organizational development uh, professional. So like, what does that exactly mean? And particularly for our folks who may be interested in getting into documentaries, but they don't want to do it from the filmmaker side, like that's not where their gifts lie. That's a very good question that I'm, that I'm sometimes asking myself as well. I guess I, it just kind of really, in a, in a way, it, for kind of quite weird reasons, things over the course of the last year, five years, six years, seven years, probably already more, things just happened. And and I've been doing a lot of project management for the last, I would say, almost 15 years, not, um, not only in the documentary scene. Like I, As I said, I did a lot of different arts-related projects. I've, I've also worked for quite a bit, and I still do sometimes consult on projects that are kind of on the margin of art and international cultural collaboration and um, what other people might also call development, even though I'm really trying to avoid this term for various reasons. Um, mm. why, why are you trying to avoid that term? Yeah, because I think it's just not the right. I mean, so development is, of course, is, is, is always connected to development aid, which also implies a certain power balance that we cannot claim doesn't exist because it does exist. And we are all part, I mean, I myself in my privileged position, I'm part of perpetuating it of, to a certain extent. Um, I would like to see this changing and I would like to try my, I'm trying, I, I think at least, or I'm, I'm giving my best to try. I mean, I don't, um, of course we often do not succeed to also within these, organizations that do this kind of develop the development work to be an agent um, of, I wouldn't say an agent is probably not the right word, but someone who provokes a little bit, maybe also sometimes pokes people into looking at their privilege and this power imbalance and the way they approach um, the projects that they are implementing. Um, there's a big question, obviously, of representation. There's a big question of involvement. It's like, who sits behind which desks and uh, puts projects together and who are those that are a that are the so-called beneficiaries of this project and where do we claim that there is a that there is a balance between the two when quite clearly the way the system is working there is a north south divide that we cannot deny yeah cuz i actually uh, want to like tap into that a little bit more particularly since like your first documentary work was with working on with filmmakers in Egypt. And for those of you who are based, like for the for our U.S. listeners, filmmakers from the global South and their relationship with institutions and filmmakers in the global North, there's this very similar conversation happening around authorship and extractive storytelling. Also how in many ways filmmakers in the global south are dealing with issues around funding for the films particularly when they want to tell their own stories if you could kind of go into maybe some of the specific issues that like filmmakers in egypt and and you work with filmmakers in lebanon but if you could go into some of the specific um things that filmmakers from the global south particularly from the egypt that they have to face in trying to you know, work with institutions in the global north. So what are some of the problematic things that come up? Oh, where to start? Yes, that's a very good question. Like, um, maybe I can start by saying a few words about Docsbox and how Docsbox has, is working. And Docsbox is working with documentary filmmakers from the Arab region and the continent of Africa also. Um, Docsbox does this with, in, different, in, in different ways, through fellowship programs, through, through support programs as well. Um, immediate support, as in immediate kind of consultancies, um, but also, for instance, through events and um, establishing resources and access, etc. 
to go back to your question, one of the places to start is definitely the logic of co-production. So we have seen a lot of films coming out of the so the Arab region, in particular following the so-called revolutions after 2011, because there was, on the one hand, there was a big desire in need of filmmakers to produce, and there was also a lot of imagery, of Im images, there were a lot of images, there were many stories to tell. But of course, there was also um, an international interest on the region. And this has, of course, on the one hand, had a great and a great positive impact on the amount of money that was made available to uh, productions that were um, that were coming out of these countries. But on the other hand, it also meant that there was, a, in, in certain cases, there's a dictate of stories. So let me give you an example. Like for instance, I've heard from countless filmmakers and also producers that their um, European counterparts would want them to tell specific stories in a specific way um, and a Western audience would want to see the, um, a certain country or a certain political situation be represented. Um, then, of course, there is there's this, this, this terrible funding logic that, of course, the, that the moment the interest for a certain region goes away, it's like this a la mode, you could almost say a la mode um, situation, that's the flavor of the week, a crisis of the week goes away. Then also the interest of funds and also festivals. I mean, we've seen so many festivals that programmed, um, that had special programs on films from the Arab region following 2011. And there was also there's also always this question around why does they have this label? Why does the like revolutionary films, for instance? I mean, why do we put these labels on films? Why do we expect a filmmaker to be an agent for the situation, for the political situation of their country? Why is a film, is an Egyptian filmmaker supposed to make a film about Egypt or is supposed to make a film about a political situation or is supposed to make a film? Why is a Syrian filmmaker supposed to be making a film about the Syrian revolution and um, or et cetera, et cetera? You can kind of continue this and of course apply it to many other countries. Then the other, I think for me, um, where the lack of understanding and willingness of certain European producers, but also funders to, I mean, they have often, they often come to this country with these, to these countries with the attitude that they know it all. And that they also know how to operate a potentially dangerous, very repressive state because they come in from a place of entitlement that, makes them believe that the way they operate the world and they see the world is the right one and and the only one and because of that they will be fine and because they are holding a german passport a dutch passport a french french passport they will be fine and on multiple occasions this has put filmmakers crews characters in incredible incredibly dangerous situations, because obviously we are talking in the meantime, in many countries, I mean, before also in the meantime, depending on the country, in many countries of um, extremely repressive regimes, where one wrong word, one wrong move could just make you disappear, simply disappear. And there are sadly countless stories of Western funders and producers that are just oblivious to the situation and that also don't really want to listen to their counterparts. And I think in general, and this is something that we discussed and, and, and a lot at, during these two documentary conventions, that this is this importance of, of thinking about ethical ways of collaborating with each other and thinking also about... Um, creating co-productions uh, and co-production collaborations that take these different realities into consideration and are running on a, on a, based on a, on a mutual, on mutual respect and the willingness to listen and the willingness to also take your partner serious. That is so um, similar to things that are happening on, on, on this side of the pond. 
um, because I have always been, particularly since I used to work on in the industry side where I was reading proposals and applications, I think funders, like the, basically the people who are reviewing these applications for the first time before they those these projects actually are finished and come out into the world have a huge responsibility in regards to what they choose to fund and support. And I've, I've always said, by the time something makes it to a festival, how many hundreds of people have seen that, have look, looked through that proposal? And almost, I feel like it's almost maybe um, too late. And I'm, I'm not saying that people can't take action if a film is problematic once it hits the festival, but there are so many steps leading up to it. And I think, you know, funders really need to be um, held accountable and do more vetting. I think it was for... Doc Munich um, last year, Lana Garland and I, we co-presented a workshop on this, this topic. And um, some of the filmmakers of color we were um, talking with who were you know, part of communities of the global South talked about, you know, being pigeonholed into what you mentioned. I've been pigeonholed into telling like certain types of stories. And then we also did a workshop with programmers who were actually really asking really great questions about steps that they could, they could take to kind of like spot problematic um, projects while they were in the process of programming it, programming. And we were able to offer them um, some, some really sound advice in that regard. Like for example, asking about um, the crew on a project, particularly if uh, the, the director or producer are not from the, not from the communities that are being represented on screen. Um, like looking, first of all, like examining the crew, and if there are are if there are crew members who are um, part of that represented group, kind of like trying to assess whether that person has any power on the project, or are they just put on there just for the optics? Also, if they're dealing with issues around like refugees or working with protagonists who are undocumented. Like what things did they put in place to protect those people like during the production and, and what things have they put in place after the production when the project comes out? So, I mean, there are things that you can ask ahead of time to ensure to ensure this doesn't happen. Uh, there's been recent controversy about the film um, Sabia. I believe I'm saying, I'm saying that correctly. Um, it was at Sundance last year. Now it's come out that a lot of the, the participants did not give their consent or they were asked to consent um, to filming like after the fact, but then the documents they were asked to sign were even in their language. Yeah, I mean, just it's all kinds of things that are coming out about the ethics in regards to filmmaking, but also, you know, funders and um, distributors and broadcasts, they have an ethical responsibility to do their due diligence as well. Absolutely. And I couldn't agree more with everything that you just said. I think that there, I just like one word on Savia. I think that there are different sides to this story as well and different interpretations. And I guess sometimes it's also interesting to see which projects are picked out for due diligence, because in fact, in Savia's case, and I don't know, I can't, I mean, I can't, cannot go and uh, can go into the details. And I also don't know the details. At the same time, in the Savia's case, the filmmaker is actually from the community that he filmed even though he has lived outside of this community for a long time. And I find it, sometimes I'm asking myself, why are certain projects put through a due diligence process and others are not? And I think that uh, absolutely the, there, is a, there is a responsibility that has to be assumed by pitching forums, by development labs, by funders, by broadcasters in, in the projects they, they pick. And I think it's amazing, for instance, what you were just saying about the um, about Dockfest mentioned that more and more festivals start to, and festivals and also other spaces start to understand that it's also necessary to offer this kind of training, even though, and, and start these discussions, because I feel, again, and it brings me back, and I'm using the word on purpose, it brings me back to this entitlement, and I'm using it because I know when I first came to Egypt, I was as entitled. And then I can say it in the meantime, um, and I'm still to a certain extent in many, many situations, I am entitled because that's the way I was brought up, because that's the society I live in. And that's the structure that I've been brought up into where I was the majority 
or I am the majority and I'm European and I'm Western and I'm German and I have one of the most powerful passports in this world. And this is, of course, been part, has, is part of the, what the person I am. Um, also looking back at my decision-making processes in certain situations or also how I have, I mean, for instance, first appro approached also being in, in Egypt and what my role that would be in there. Only It's only since I would say probably the last three, four years that I really have started thinking about what this means and who I am in this global community that we all uh, live in and what are the privileges that I'm holding and, and how can I use them for the best possible outcome. And of course, often I'm failing, often I'm doing things wrong, but I feel like I'm trying to be on a journey, but they kind of going back to the responsibility that I think sits with all of these different industry professionals. I, I think that a lot of what, what we see, but we still see in projects that are being selected, that are being broadcasted, has to do with several things. Like one is that there is this lack of knowledge that comes from this entitlement because you don't even ask yourself these questions if you feel so entitled and you think you're so sure of yourself and your decision-making and your way of looking at the world. Then, of course, there's something to be said. And I know, I mean, we, we have discussed this uh, in, in private conversations a lot, uh, Tony with Bridget and, and, and also others, the um, composition of these decision-making, gatekeeping, let's call them panels or groups, and also the power dynamics inside of them and who gets in and who stays outside are still far from being representative. And I think it's very difficult for us as human beings to completely let go of our unconscious biases. And it's extremely difficult for us as human beings to also go through a process of unlearning how we have been programmed in a way. And when you're not even aware that, you, that there's the potentiality that you should be doing this, then of course it doesn't, you don't change or it doesn't change. In Europe, yes, of course. I mean, the UK is a big exception. Um, but in Europe, this is still like a long process and a long discussion. And we can see some changes. Also, we can see some changes and we see new movements. And we have, of course, fantastic projects and programs like to Toolbox um, by that is run by Temba or with, or, and with Babette and etc. Or also, the fact that last year, um, or the, no, two years ago, it was the, the industry professionals or industry heads of industry, film, the heads of the film industry came together to start the anti-racist task force of European film. And there is stuff happening, but it's, yes. it's a long mm -hmm. and hard <laughs> journey, I think. It takes constant vigilance. Mm -hmm. Like you said, we have to unlearn these patterns and biases and like uh, what I came up against in my my old job was often if a project that came through was problematic in some way, I would reach out to them and you know and address it and to let them know that they need to address it. One of the issues was if a filmmaker was particularly moneyed and white and male and prominent, my supervisors would just give them a pass. And that was incredibly frustrating because it they would be touting this a message of, you know, being progressive and being ethical, but then behind the scenes, you know, they were doing the complete opposite. And that was frustrating to see, particularly because it's I think it's a different situation if you're learning and you don't know and you make mistakes. But when someone is telling you that, you know, this is like wrong or unethical to do, or this needs to be addressed, but still you move forward, Yes, yeah, a whole other issue. At some point, I'm really like, I'm going to have someone from the Jerome Foundation on the podcast because they actually have this, I want to misquote the name of the document, but it's this retool equity document. I had the opportunity to um, be on one of the panels, um, review panels for the Jerome Foundation um, one of these past years. And it was an incredibly extensive process. Um, and what they do is um, they really train us as reviewers to first become aware and articulate our biases. And when we had our first, well, actually, I remember I missed, it was like the, the, I think the last year I was at Doc, the last year I was at Doc Leipzig and I was a little annoyed because we, they were having the review panel like on the last night and I was missing the parties. <laughs> so I was like, don't go in it. 
And they had actually blocked out four hours. I'm like, how is this review panel going to take four hours? Because, you know, I had read all the materials and like written my comments and things. And like once we got into the process, like I understood why it took the four hours. And actually it was, a, I feel like the mo- one of the most satisfying and deliberate experiences I've had as a re- on a review panel. Because they had each of us, first of all, at the beginning of the conversation, articulate our own biases, like positive and negative. So we all knew where each other were. Also, the review panel was made up because the Jerome Foundation offers funding for organizations, for arts organizations in um, New York and Minnesota that work with film as well as visual arts. So it was like a mix of different artist professionals. So the, because um, there were people who worked in the visual arts on the panel, I actually was able to learn some things about how they review things. But one thing I became like acutely aware of, which I mean, you think this would be obvious, but there were several organizations with whom like I was familiar with, like who were who were applying for funding or, you know, people, I knew, knew people there, you know, friends with folks. Um, and like, you think this would be obvious, but I realized like through the process that I had not, read those app, those particular applications as thoroughly as um, some of the other applications of those who I did not know. And it was like, it really brought to my conscious awareness because when people were pointing out like, okay, well, they actually were kind of vague on this part or they, you know, what they were saying in their budget didn't match up what was in their application. I was like, oh yeah, they're right. You know, so just like what I learned from that was like when I was, in the, when I got back to my, you know, my day job without a review application, I began to become more conscious. Like, okay, I know this person, I know they're a good filmmaker, but let me be more deliberate and like reading through this. By the end of it, even though we are, all of us had like initial ideas about who we wanted to give funding to, and some of them like completely opposite, because we had discussed the pros and the cons and articulated our biases and talked about the strengths and weaknesses of the applications so thoroughly by the end of it we actually came to a consensus and a complete agreement as to who we would award recommend to award funding to um to the board it was an incredible process so and so their retool kit is available online i'll make sure to put it on marion's page i encourage everyone who is a reviewer or a gatekeeper to visit that document and it is specific to us but I think a lot of people could learn from it. But the, um, my point is like, there needs to be a more deliberate process. Absolutely. And thank you for sharing this. So this sounds like a fantastic experience. And I would love, because I was about to ask, do they have a toolbox? And then you said, yes, they created this toolbox, which is amazing. And yes, it's specific to the US, but I'm sure that there's a lot of in there that one could learn from and maybe can be adapted. Maybe this is also a little project that someone could fund out there, that it could be, that it could be adapted to a European context or Someone could also turn it into a little training or a little podcast. I think now is the moment. I really do feel that also, I mean, in, 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 in the European audiovisual context, the Creative Europe um, is one of the most important funders. And we have seen some very interesting funding decisions recently that are kind of alluding to maybe a tiny little change, that a tiny little change is possible. And I think we really have to fight back, like, for instance, fantastic, fantastic um, initiatives and organizations such as Circle Women Doc Accelerator that is run and was co-founded. It was not co-founded, it was founded and is run and and uh, held together by Biliana Tuturov, which received funding from Creative Europe. And it's, um, I would almost call it career development training for female identifying producers and directors from mostly Europe, but they also do accept people from all over the world. And it's a fantastic, a fantastic um, opportunity. I would, I mean, also, again, encourage everyone to kind of look it up if they can. Um, currently, I think they're also accepting applications. And also toolbox that I mentioned before, um, run by Dembad in the framework of the European film market. Now it's the third edition. And it's, again, like w- one of these projects that are programs that is so incredibly needed and important for marginalized filmmakers, which I struggle with the word and I never quite. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I, Tamara Dawid, who I, who I had the, the honor of um, being in a workshop with for Toolbox, she said equity seeking. And maybe is this a better way, way of saying it? I sometimes say 
under-resourced, but I also couple that with over-resourced. True. Because there are filmmakers who are (laughs) over-resourced. Absolutely true. Yes, I mean, I would, I can't, I would like to see this toolbox because also I think it's not only like it's in, it's also interesting because part of my life also takes place outside of the documentary world, like somewhat outside of the documentary world, because I consult on projects in different, as I said, more development related organizations, bigger organizations as well, and who also mostly work with film. And also um, I can see that there is, at least in some places, there's a big, hunger for more training and more information on how these structures could be changed and how decision making could be done differently and how and also sometimes because they are all based on public funding logics sometimes also the maneuvering space isn't as wide as those working in the space would like it to be but I still kind of really feel that there's a hunger and a need for people to really um you know, be fed with information. And of course, it, there's also one's own responsibility because at the end of the day, there's a lot out there and you can also self-educate and do the work. But if there's a possibility of supporting structures or people that work inside of structures, kind of start the journey and, and be prepared to change, then it, maybe that's that's already something that, um, I mean, I feel I would like to support because I've been also supported in such situations from other people. Okay, so I wanted to move on to the International Documentary Convention. Can you talk about like what made you want to start that, but also about some of the, the phenomenal work that's come out of that, that initiative? Yeah, I mean, the Documentary Convention started, we had the first edition in 2018, and it was obviously, uh, it was not me um, alone who started it. It was in the context of Docsbox, and it was together with fantastic organizations in from different parts of the world. Um, we we did it in, like Docsbox did it in close partnership with AFAC, the Arab Fund for Arts and Culture. The very initial idea that Diana and I had, I think, was to create a space where industry professionals from both the European context and the Arab region could come together and discuss in a kind of, I would say, think tank um, over three days in a, in a nice environment to assess the status quo of co-productions and funding mechanisms and distribution possibilities and collaboration, et cetera, without the pressure of a festival environment or a market environment. Because we had found um, when we were talking to people that um, many of them said, yeah, yeah, we're having all of these important discussions and conversations over coffee and cigarettes, basically, whilst we're in between pitching forums or in between meetings or in between watching films or in between chasing films or in between selling our films or whatever your role is and such festivals. And I mean, we all know it. I mean, we are, when we're in festivals, we're always on the run. So we felt like we wanted to create an extended coffee and cigarette break really over, <laughs> over the course of, of three days and really put some of these topics on the agenda. And the way we approached it, it was a kind of a quite collaborative process the whole programming and curation of the pro of 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 the of the convention itself we had we identified core themes and i think they were a long time ago ethical co-production and collaboration and distribution in the first year there was a, a group that dealt more with representation and each of these themes had an expert group and the leader of the expert group was also part, and I actually have to admit, we stole this a little bit, this idea a little bit from Getting Real, uh, even though it was so much smaller. I mean, of course, I mean, when we were looking for inspiration, when we were looking for inspiration, of course, it was, I mean, we were planning was tiny compared to Getting Real. And I also have to say for this first edition, I mean, we had amazing partners. We had IFPA, Bertha Phantom Boer, Doc Leipzig, with Bridget in the first edition, and also um, the Sundance Institute and documentary, like Sundance Documentary Program. And, and of course, the, the big partnership with AFAC and some smaller partners. We were incredibly underfunded. We were incredibly underfunded. We were really uh, kind of working our asses off and with our little team to putting this together. It, was such a, it turned out to be such a wonderful experience because we had... Basically, in the first time, we only had around 100 people that came together from almost 30 different countries from Europe and um, the uh, Arab region, mostly in this first edition. And every single person that attended, which all of us who have done big events, you know, often there's people that do not really 
participate a bit more, a bit less, or don't participate or don't like the context. And of course, there was discussion, there was debate, etc. But I had this like really strong feeling that everyone who came had the willingness to give and to engage and to discuss on their various different levels with their various different opinions. And I think what we were trying to do, what, what I really felt my role was, is to create this environment. And I felt constantly, I myself don't even necessarily have to be in this environment. I don't have to necessarily hold a microphone. I don't have to necessarily be part of this different discussions because there are so many amazing people who can hold these discussions. So I really felt I wanted to create, and this is also not when I say I, I mean, obviously the team, we together wanted to create a space where people could be together. Gauge how they need to and want to. Exactly. The fourth one was, um, was on was on archive, which was turned out into, because it was full of amazing people. Obviously, there was Diana Tahri, who is now the director and manager of Docsbox, filmmaker, activist, and uh, human being that she is. Yeah, we actually talked to her as part of um, Dot Leipzig's programming, but it was like phenomenal talking to her because like, you know, my background, like I got into Docs via archival research and like it was really phenomenal um, speaking with her because she knows how to challenge you in, in, a, in a good way. And like after my conversation, I was with her, I was talking to Renelle and I said, you know, I still have, even though I have broad ideas about archival and access to archival, I still have like, I was like a capitalistic ownership perception of it because like Jihan was constantly like kind of modifying and correcting my language. And I love it when that type of conversation happens because like I could feel the new neurons growing, <laughs> you know, my brain can't quite get it because like I've been seeped in this way of understanding it, but like I can feel like the openings happening. Diane is an incredible storyteller. I could just listen to her forever telling also stories and tales. And she's incredibly funny. She's an amazing dancer. If you ever get to dance with her, she's an amazing dancer. I'm not sure if she would like me to share this with everyone, but she's an amazing dancer and a kick-ass professional, of course. I completely agree with what you were saying. She's sometimes challenging you. And the moment it happens, it's it's like, oh, where do I, where should I take this challenge now? But then Days later, it seeps in and you start thinking about it and you kind of, or I start thinking about it. And she became the director of Docsbox and she still is the director of Docsbox after Diana's term as director ended in 2019. And we worked together in Docsbox for the first one and a half years. And she has created amazing new programs and uh, is doing also so many, she's also an amazing visual artist, obviously she she creates fascinating visual arts and her heart beats her heart beats for archives and and they, they just like at Docsbox they are launching or have launched an archive related project. I was there from 2014 to, to, to 2020 and it's been really extremely and I think I've said it, said it before extremely forming years where I was dropped into the documentary world and had also decided that I wanted to stay there. And I had the chance to do these two documentary conventions that were also made me, you know, made me get a much wider idea about the, the, the industry, the international documentary community and, 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 and the needs that were out there and the discussions that were like the pertinent topics and, and, and discussions really. And I think after six years, um, in the beginning of 2020, there was just this moment when I, felt it was time for something new and to to see where else in the documentary world but also in other spaces I could go and life could take me and it just felt like like the right moment and I'm still involved with Docsbox I'm still um, on their general assembly and every once in a while I've been doing some stuff in 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 the, in the programs and I'm following closely everything what they are doing. And um, I, I love the fact that I can be a fascinated observer now. That's also a very nice position to be in, obviously. Um, I, I, however, for me, it was just time, to, time for change. You know, sometimes also, in particular, when you have, when I feel like when you've been part of founding an organization and you've gone through the teething problems and 
and, and brought it to life and then seen the first programs happening and all of this, but it was just that's the time to let go, I guess. Mm -hmm. I think there is this, um, I mean, I wouldn't call it a founder syndrome because I'm just, I'm really considering myself as one of the persons who was part of putting this into being. So, but at the same time, your, my view of, or my, my weight on an organization that I've founded is also, of course, something that the, the organization has to carry. Mm -hmm. um, and and it just, I just felt like the right moment to try something new, really. And I was also, as how old, I mean, I was approaching my late 30s, so I felt it's time, right? Yeah. Other people buy other people's buy houses and have children, and I just like you found organizations. You start. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's that's also something strange that has happened to me over the course of the last. So yeah, and and I left it, and you know, again, like I'm, it was just a very lucky, like many things. I was just in, I was just very lucky, um, because, I mean, I left I left Docsbox thinking that I would want to work as a free bird a little bit as a free as a freelancer and um trying out different things and and I'm still like kind of dreaming about there we go again founding but this is maybe three years from now I've decided founding a space that is more of a cooperative that brings together people that work as freelancers but they can also do projects together and we give back to each other. Like I've, I've this whole, I, I've all, I've this whole uh, utopian idea um, of founding this space at some point. And uh, but then when I when I left, I thought, well, some people know me, and maybe when maybe there is an opportunity, there are opportunities out there for me, and maybe people might approach me, but maybe not. So let's see what's going to happen. And of course, again, like given the fact that I'm living in Germany and I'm, I've paid my taxes, I've been part of the system because of being employed at, at Docsbox, I was in the very kind of, I was in a very good situation or comfortable situation where I was, just, where I was able to get unemployment benefits that are quite decent, um, in, in particular when you had a certain um, income that are quite decent in Germany that allowed me to be like six months. Wow, that's great. I'm going to see what's going to happen. You live in a country that has a, a safety net. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's very true. And um, again, I'd it is, uh, it is also interesting when it happened, I tell you, like in the beginning, it was very difficult for me accept, to accept that. It was very difficult, even though I knew I needed it. And even though I knew I also, you know, quote unquote, deserve it because I paid my taxes and I paid my social insurances, etc. It was very difficult for me to accept this, to accept the fact that I would be getting money and to accept that to, to kind of call the benefits office to report unemployed to allow myself not to work, to allow myself not to feel like this a constant sense of urgency because I need to solve any problems. It was really, it was very interesting to what happened. And then of course, COVID hit immediately after <laughs> I had left um, or even a little bit before that. And, um, and then things again just happened. Like people approached me and I had the chance to work on some great projects as curator and project consultant and um and then of course there's day documentary association of heroes yeah so you decided okay i'm gonna co-create another organization so let's talk about day yeah day is my true love of course uh, or our true love but i think it was it was a 2019 itfa where bridget came to me a visitor came to me and said i need to take you out for lunch girl and then she took me out for lunch and then she told me um, about the about her plan or at the time it was still like an idea, almost a plan. And uh, she told me about the idea of founding a new European documentary association, the Documentary Association of Europe, or DAY as we call it now, and um, asked me more or less at the time if I would be interested in being on board or could imagine to consult her because obviously, because she's also based in Berlin. And the idea was to um, register the organization legally in Germany. And because I've done this before, um, and also generally because we are friends and uh, we, she wanted to share with me and get my input and also kind of probably hear me out a little bit to figure if, um, to find out if I would be up for joining this journey. And I remember when I then left Docsbox, I mean, I already said to her then, I will of course support you. I can imagine being one of the co-founders. You go, girl. It's an amazing idea. You should really do it. This is what the industry needs. And if someone can run it, then it's you. And 
like all of that, of course. And then I I remember um, we, we we like the co-founding happened in Berlinale 2020 again just right before the first lockdown here in Germany, and I was one of the co-founders with a great seven eight eight people, and um, I very clearly said to Bridget at the time, listen, I can support the registration, I can support you with the paperwork and or any like, but other than that, no commitment. I'm six months, I have nothing. I will, I mean, I, I, I can be here and there, but I don't really want to be taking any role on. I can't tell you if I will be your co-director on this or not. It's, I really think I'm just a consultant and supporter. That's what I, right. Mm-hmm. I had commitment issues, basically. <laughs> and, and then kind of the work on day quite intensified quite quickly. Also, because obviously I was in this, very nice situation where I was receiving this benefits and I didn't have mm-hmm. to earn money and I had some more time than usual. So I was also able to work on it. It was fun and working with Bridget is a lot of fun. We have a great time together. And then I remember at Candox, um, virtual Candox, of course, in 2020, she said, so Marian, they require us to put our job titles. So what do you want to be called? How do we call you? <laughs> You have to tell me. I mean, there's now you have to decide. You have to call you something. You can change. You can change it later. But, but tell me. And then it was the first time that we both that we both called ourselves volunteer co-directors. And then and then I think it kind of naturally stayed that way. And suddenly we were the co-directors of the Documentary Association of Europe. And we. Um, we don't use the volunteer anymore, even though we are still volunteering for it. And it's been again, yet again, an amazing ride. We had, I mean, we have in the meantime, maybe for those who don't know, I mean, the, the day is founded 2020. It's a member membership organization, and we accept members from all documentary professions from inside and outside of Europe to join the association. And how many members do you have? In the meantime, approaching 500. Okay, go ahead, y'all. That's great. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a bit because every once in a while it's also a little bit crazy mm-hmm. because obviously, uh, as, as you can imagine, like the first year, the whole institution only existed online. I mean, we had planned this big festival, right? And then it never um, happened. And then, and then I remember too, at one point, y'all were doing, I don't know if you're still doing it, but you were doing like regular meetings and I would try to wake up for some of them because it was like 6 a.m. my time. But talk about um, like what some of the initiatives that you all are doing. And I specifically remember someone was mentioned in a few meetings I was able to attend that there is really differences in support for filmmakers in Northern Europe versus Southern Europe. And y'all were trying to address that imbalance. So can can you speak to that as well as like other initiatives y'all are trying to so i go come back to these meetings because this is one of the, the things that i love the most in the last two years i would say uh, we started this weekly hangouts and they were basically again like creating spaces for people to discuss and we had different topics and group facilitators everything everyone was volunteering and of course it was the first lockdown so everyone was locked down and uh, many we, re- we just realized it was born out of the realization or the or 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 the reality of all of us of many of us feeling lonely and disoriented and 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 in particular also filmmakers being in positions where should I accept um, being invited to film in a virtual festival or not etc. And then we we had this from March till November with a little break in the summer every week. And sometimes we had up to, up to 50 people that were joining us from all over the world. And it was discussions on topics such as um, online, like there was an ongoing topic on online distribution, because this was obviously something that people had a lot of questions about. Yeah, people didn't know what to do. Exactly. They really didn't know what to do. And it was also a work in progress, right? We were learning it while we, whilst we were doing it. We were making the experience while it was happening. Um, and um, then... Then the reality, like the realities, kind of kept changing so quickly, and and then there was one where filmmakers would just kind of present their projects to each other and talk about them and give each other really like peer to peer advice. 
And this was run by the wonderful Laura Glöckner, who made this like the safest space that you can imagine. Like she, she just kind of made these filmmakers feel really great. Um, what you are, what you are saying, I think you are, you are probably referring to the summit that we held in December 2020, it, where we brought together. Because one big part of what Day is trying to do is be uh, not. I, I should stop. People, people are telling us that we should stop being so humble about things, but it's so difficult when you're still such a small organization, right? So, um, or new organization. So we are also one part of what we do is lobby um, on a European level, but because of the fact that, oh, yeah, because of the fact um, that the situations in, in, in the different countries uh, of Europe are so wildly different for, not only for documentary, but because we are, Talking about documentary here, it's uh, for for documentary for production in terms of funding, in ter terms of budgets as well, in terms of um, broadcasting possibilities, in terms of distribution possibilities, etc. Um, we have we have to first map the industry really to and map Europe and bring it back closer together, and like bring the co community of Europe back closer together to kind of find the common talking points that we all can gather behind. So that then we as they can go to the commission in Brussels and lobby for these changes. And one of the first steps, because in many countries um, around Europe, you have really cool, and I use the cool word on purpose because most of them are super cool, but also really good and grown and strong documentary um, associations or initiatives or guilds, or sometimes it's also loose collectives. It depends on, on the country who don't necessarily talk to each other and don't necessarily know each other. So what we did, we brought them together in this initial summit, and um, a virtual summit, I mean, probably needless to say, um, where they, they presented themselves to each other, basically. And we put together a report from that that we are actually now have in a beautiful PDF as well. We have the, the most amazing graphic designers, and I have to give him a graphic designer, and I have to give him a shout out. It's Abraham Seitun. He is a fantastic, fantastic person and designer and um, creates the best designs for us. We love them. Sorry, I needed to put this. Oh, I need no, to no, no, not apologize for shout outs here. Um, and <laughs> be, be a, this is like the beginning of a longer mapping process. And I think part of this has been, has continued, like these conversations have continued over different panels. I was on a panel in Mallorca, for instance, if you look at the countries like France, um, that uh, is, as some might, would say, documentary heaven in terms of the funding possibilities that exist, in terms of the slots that exist, in terms of the level of support that also exists. And of course, filmmakers inside of France, it doesn't mean that everything is super easy and uh, documentary filmmaking is a piece, um, is a walk in the park and um, you don't struggle. Of course, they struggle in their own ways. Um, at the same time, if you compare this to um, the, the realities of um, the, the realities in countries like Hungary, for instance, that's of course widely different. Um, and this reflects in the standing that they have also vis-a-vis -vis the, the funding that they can potentially receive from Creative Europe and they, how they are being treated, in particular by new rules that have been released for documentary support last year. I mean, this is maybe a little bit too complex, but which basically put producers in an application process, producers from countries of so-called high audiovisual output, favor them over those from so-called low capacity audiovisual, low capacity audiovisual output countries. In the work that you all do, are you actually going to coming to a consensus about initiatives that you want to um, do and then going to governmental officials in these various countries and lobbying for um, changes in legislation or support? Oh, yeah, this is, I mean, I think that uh, we would never lobby in a nation state. I think that's, we would always leave this to, um, uh, we would always leave this to the, to the associations inside of the country. Okay, we would, right. um, mm -hmm. we would do this. We would try and do this on the European level. And I have to say it's, we are both Bridget and I, we are still learning how to do it. And we have, um, because we both don't really have 
is this a bad thing to say this publicly? No, it's not a bad thing. It's, we don't have that much experience with doing it. And we yeah, have it's had, not your not your wheelhouse yet. Yeah. Yes, not yet. So <laughs> we are still also learning. We had the first interactions with the commission um, that, that happened last year. And we were part of some of the consultations. And we are lucky that we had the great support of our board member, Juliana Ugrin from Hungary, who is a, um, a producer and um, a really, really good speaker and has a really good um, kind of, she, she's just also very intelligent and, and can put her thoughts together in a quite um, eloquent way. Or also people from France, like Christian Pop, who were uh, kind of also taking us with them as an institution, because as I said, like, France has a better support system in this whole context. So also when there's communication with Brussels, for them, they have other inways into that. And um, they reached out when they did their push and campaign, they re reached out today for us to be included and to also get our members and other associations on board with the resolution that they were putting forward. Um, and that's kind of the way how we are step-by-step step getting there. And we want to bring the national associations together again, ideally this year in a, in a physical space to continue these discussions. But it's, a, it's also a step-by-step -step process. And, and at the moment um, we, um, yeah, we're still also in the, in the, in the forming, forming years in a way. Y'all are like a baby organization, but it's been um, amazing just to see how quickly you've grown. And especially since you essentially got started during the pandemic. It's true. It's true. It's also it shows um, the generosity and love of the of the sector. At mm -hmm. the same time, it also shows the need for such an organization very clearly. Yes, people were and hungry for it. Exactly, and I wish that also money, people that and, and people who have money don't only tell us that they know that this is that this needs to exist, but they also understand that um, this needs money to exist because, of course, our members that we love, they pay their membership fees and this allows us to exist and do a few things and do things and, and have networking events and throw reception finally again. I mean, you can't imagine like this feeling in uh, Doc Leipzig was the first time that Bridget and I together after the founding had the opportunity to have a, um, to host the co-production dinner I mean, together with our friends from, from Polish dogs and um, we, it was like, like this, the joy on the train going there, the fact that I can be with people and that we for the first time can present it. And then it continued at ITFA where we had um, a lot of visibility and we had, a, we were able, this, in spite of the COVID situation, we were able to have this gathering. I mean, this is where I also have to admit, I know why I'm doing this and why I put my time and effort into it, because it's just also, there's so much coming back, like people are giving back so much, and we have so much support. I mean, our advisory board, don't even get me started. Like our advisory board, they are just stars and our members. I mean, when we have general assemblies, uh, meetings, they come. I mean, that's also, they come, they are there. When, 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 we do, when we do panels, people come. So there is a lot of generosity in there. If now, as I said, people with money would also decide to put some money into that, then our lives would be much easier, I think. Contribute. Y'all contribute. No, but I have to say I'm very optimistic. You can find out about the Documentary Association of Europe at our website. It's day-europe.org. And we also will be around. I mean, we are going to be in the virtual European film market with walk-in consultations in case you have an, anyone has an accreditation and would like to see us. Um, but also anyway, we are very approachable. If you would like to get in touch with us, just send us an email and then we'll be around festivals really. Like hopefully they will happen. So I have, I will be going to Thessaloniki and Bridget will be in Ukraine at some point. We'll definitely be represented at Vision du Riel and in Candox. And um, so we'll see. We'll be around and we hope to see everyone. And I just kind of really, really, really hope that I can see you, Tony and Ranel, at some point in person again um, in 2022. And I just hope that we will get out of this pandemic. Mm -hmm.
It was so wonderful to catch up with Marion and hear how the Documentary Association of Europe has grown since the organization was first mentioned on our show with our conversation with co-founder Bridget O'Shea. Marion made so many great points, including the importance of unlearning patterns and biases rooted in unacknowledged privilege and entitlement. She also speaks about the need and responsibility of institutions to create a space for open and frank discussions without centering themselves. People and institutions grow for the better when we are challenged. In our next episode, we're headed back to California as a chat with a co-founder of Represent Media, Jennifer Crystal Chen. Thank you so much for listening today. And if you liked any of this episode, please share it with a friend. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe on all your podcast platforms. When you give us that five-star rating, it helps to make people more aware of our show. Visit our website at whatsupwdocs.com. That's whatsupwdocs.com. And make sure to sign up for our mailing list to get the latest show news. And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at whatsupwdocs. Again, that's whatsupwdocs. And remember, keep telling your stories. Today's episode was hosted by Tony Bell and produced by Brunel Schubert. Music is by Sierra Thomas. The What's Up with Docs team would like to acknowledge the traditional ancestral unceded territory of the Chumash and Tongva on which we are recording this podcast.